I was sitting in my parents' house watching the Olympics instead of being there. It was very difficult. Like I had these feelings of failing and feelings of not being good enough. Excellence is about standing, and excellence is a requirement Welcome to Unfiltered Athletes. I'm your host, Leo. In this podcast, we go behind the scenes with world-class athletes to reveal the untold stories of their journeys. From grueling training sessions to mental strategies to achieve greatness, get ready for a raw, unfiltered look at the world of sports. In this episode, I talk with Leonora McKinnon, an Olympic fencer who specializes in the EPE discipline. Leonora has an amazing family story, which made her start competing for Great Britain before switching to represent Canada at international events. We talk about her fencing journey, the injuries that slowed her down chasing her goals and prevented her from being funded by different organizations. We also talk more broadly about fencing, a sport that is really undercovered by the media. And this journey in fencing started pretty young when she was looking at her two sisters. Both of my older sisters actually joined the club before me. And so I was kind of like a few years younger than them, always wanting to copy them and everything they did. So I started fencing. Um, and yeah, I just remember learning all of the basic stuff, which can be quite boring because fencing's, there's a safety issue in fencing, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just remember learning about it and being like, oh, this is actually kind of like interesting and actually wanting to learn about the the equipment and the safety aspect of it, like, which is kind of weird because no one really enjoys that part. <laughs> okay, so, so there are there lots of technicalities. So I guess you mentioned the safety part, but there are other technicalities in, in the sport itself. Is it more like of a technical sport than uh, uh, physical, uh, even though it's, it's still physical? I, I practiced, I would say, not played once uh, or fenced once uh, only and I just remember sweating like I never sweated before just because of the equipment and feeling more mm-hmm. tired and using muscles that I didn't even know I had in my body uh, so yeah what's uh, we, we can contextualize because I think people know or have an idea of what fencing is but yeah can you contextualize I think there are three different disciplines that differ from you know uh, which parts you can touch uh, the type of uh, uh, sword <laughs> that you can use maybe yeah. also introduce the vocabulary because I I'm French, so I don't necessarily have it in French, uh, so even less in uh, in English. Yeah, no, so they are they're swords or weapons. Um, so there's, you're correct, there are three uh, different types of swords. So there's the foil, épée, and sabre. So I do épée, um, but I started in foil, which most countries is the, the standard or the norm. Um, and everyone tends to specialize in an ep- um, sorry in a weapon. So it's kind of difficult to do all three because they are so different. It'd be like asking someone to swim 100 meter backstroke, but also do 2,000 meter front crawl <laughs> and be like, well, why aren't you good at both? <laughs> um, so it is kind of like two or three different sports. Um, each with their own set of rules, different equipment, and different target areas. Um, so in Epe, we can hit anywhere on the body. Um, the whole body is the target, and there's no priority rule. So if you both touch, you both get a point. Okay. 
in fall or sabre, you kind of have to have the priorities. It's all about who attacked first, who did they get the defence in in time? Um, and that leaves a lot more, um, it's a lot more open for the referee's interpretation of the movement. Um, so in terms of the technicality, like, yeah, it's very um, technical. Like the smallest movement can be the difference between hitting or not hitting. Um, and especially, you know, when you're starting out, it's not like football. You don't just grab a ball and kick it and be like, woohoo, I'm playing football. You have to know how to do the movements and the footwork. It's not a natural thing for us. It's not a natural position. Um, so you do have to kind of go through the basics to be able to do the sport. Okay. Um is a pace so or the, the discipline that you practice um, the one that um, helps or, or has more tendencies to push for attacking versus defending? Because there is the other one where you said there's interpretation. Was I attacking? Was I defending? Did I touch first, second? Was it the same time? Blah, blah, blah. But for Epe, it seems like I just attack because I know even if I'm touched, I'll have also have a point if I touch at the same time. So is there a discipline where it's more about attacking and the other one more about defending? Um... I, I wouldn't say it's about between the disciplines. I guess it's about the person and the athlete. There are definitely um, athletes that favor attacking and athletes that favor defending. Um, but in terms of like the disciplines, I guess like, like I know that like an EPI you can get double touches, but you also have to get more touches than the other person. You have to get to 15 before them. And if you're able to touch their whole body, they're also able to touch your whole body. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of more secure to get the, to go for the single lights um, okay. if you know you can get them. And that comes down to like the strategy as well. So I think fencing is also quite strategical and trying to, it's all about like trying to get the other person to make mistakes mm -hmm. and be in control of the other person and all their movements. Okay, perfect. So, and so what, type of fencer are you and how I would say how different are you from the others because I guess there are there's like uh, agility speed um, well mm -hmm. other uh, qualities that you can have uh, how would you qualify yourself and how do you um, well what makes you different from the rest of the crowd um, so I think for I used to be when I was younger very much like attack 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 okay <laughs> everyone always used to joke about so in um, an elimination round we have three periods of three minutes and the first of 15 so we have nine minutes and everyone always used to joke about how I'd almost most of the time be done within three minutes mm -hmm. um, and yeah I was just always kind of like I'm bored not I'm bored but like I just want it done I kind of didn't have that control or that discipline Um, and I think as I've got older and more experienced in the sport, I have calmed down quite a lot on the piece and I've realized that it's about picking your moment and timing. So I do still attack a lot, but I think it's more chosen moments. Okay. Um, but I have also been working or have worked a lot on my defense and about making people attack when they, it's not necessarily the right time for them. Mm -hmm. um so i think that yeah it's kind of two aspects of of the game 
that I, I like. Um, I think a lot of people would describe me as like a, a strength fencer. And I do tend to be like quite heavy on the blade. Um, so always like beating in their blade or trying to make them react in some way. Mm-hmm. And I do use like the strength that I have in my arm and my legs to kind of make people react as well. And yeah. That's awesome because it, um, when you watch uh, fencing, it doesn't seem that technical, but all the details you mentioned in the last two, three minutes shows how precise the movements are and how much you must be like focused on the opponent, on yourself, on your body, uh, on the, the weapon itself. So that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And what made you choose in the end uh, Epe? Did you have a special love for that discipline versus the other? Um, or was it just, you know, you saw the opportunity because you thought, I mean, Maybe that's where there were uh, the least talents and you thought you could you know, be the best in that discipline? Um, so I wanted to actually do pentathlon when I was younger. Okay. So I started off riding. Riding was my first sport. Okay. And um, I was competing nationally when I quit. Um, but I wanted to do pentathlon. So obviously pentathlon, you got show jumping, fencing, running, shooting, swimming. I just wasn't that great at the swimming part. Um, I wasn't fast in the water. So, like, I love swimming, but I just wasn't that fast at it. Okay. Um, especially when I was younger. So I did a pentathlon. I didn't enjoy it. I decided it wasn't for me. But mm. I liked epic. So I kept doing both epic and foil for a few years. And then I just got very frustrated with the referees And I got very frustrated with how um, maybe I didn't always have the same opinion on them as to what happened, mm-hmm. or we had like different interpretations of the the actions. Um, and I didn't like how much sway they had over my results. And so uh, that's why I picked way, up in the end. Meaning uh, how the impact they could have on your result, interpreting what they saw versus what you thought you actually did. Yeah. So they would be like, they started the attack and I would be like, I think I started it, but okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or that like my beat on their blade, which like a beat attack was actually their parry repost. And I was like, okay. So we, yeah, I didn't, I didn't necessarily enjoy the, the impact that a ref, someone else could have over my result. Okay. I understand. Okay. So uh, looking back a bit, uh, you started when you were pretty young, seeing your two uh, older sister uh, practicing. Uh, was there a history of fencing in the family before then? Or were you three uh, the first uh, in the McKinnon family to, uh, to get into fencing? Or was the family overall into sport and a high-level sport in general? Um, so... There's no real history of fencing. I think my dad tried it at university, but never like enough to talk to us about it. Okay. Um, he always talked to us about his rowing days and stuff like that while at uh, Durham University. So, but I think my sister was the the first one to really try it properly, and she did it for five years. Um, but then she didn't like the fact that she was like made fun of by her friends for. Um, beating boys in fencing like everyone kind of made yeah. fun of her for that when she was 12 or 13 and so she quit for that reason so she was um, too good guys and she was made fun of because of that yeah 
Um, Our coach at the school actually said she was the one with the potential. Um, And so I guess if she'd stayed in it, I don't know where she could have gone. But Mm. yeah, she was naturally quite good. Um, And I think she was the first one to really try it. And I just, yeah, she's five years older than me. So at the same time that she quit, I started. Mm -hmm. So interesting and uh so we have, when uh, when did fencing become more than a hobby because you knew i mean you were talented your, your sisters were too uh, but there there must be a point where you realize that it could be more than a hobby or you know a side uh, um a side activity outside of school uh, and yeah what also what kind of students were you in school and was there a shift when you you figured out uh, okay fencing is now number one and studying might be number two until i uh, you know i reach what i want to reach Mm-hmm. Um, I think I did like my first uh, competitions age like nine um, and I made the so at the time I was actually fencing for Great Britain um, and I made the cadet squad at 13 which is the youngest age that you can make it okay um, And I kind of just stayed on the squad from 13 all the way through my cadet years and junior years. And I was one of the youngest on the junior team. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, I realized quite quite early on. I think traveling abroad at 13 with the squad was quite a big, quite a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like, for me, I was... At school, I was never that book smart. Okay. It didn't come, like studying didn't come easily to me, but sports did. Mm-hmm. And so I threw myself into a, quite a few sports when I was younger. And I just always was kind of the sporty one, the one that tried everything outside, um, constantly like running around. I played football with the school for a bit. I did a bit of athletics. Um I was on all the school teams. Uh, like we played netball, rounders, tennis, hockey. Um, so I think it was just kind of natural for me to do competitions. Okay. And I was riding at the same time and still competing heavily in the equestrian side of my life as well. So yeah, I think sports always just came a lot more naturally to me than than studying, and so it wasn't really a surprise when I was like cool I've made the GP team I was just like yeah nothing's really changed I kept Mm -hmm. just going to competitions and at the same time I was still continuing to do all the other sports so I think school just never really was at the front for me ever okay and so you kept practicing other sports as you were studying and getting into the national team uh, for uh, for fencing. Was it wasn't it like a distraction for you? Or did you uh, see that more as a you know a way of you know emptying your mind of fencing because it was probably your, your number one focus and also you know, practicing other parts of parts of your body that could you know, make you improve uh, in fencing. Um. Well, so I only stopped riding at 15, 16. Um, And I think it was around 15 that I really had to make that decision as to whether I was going to focus on fencing or riding. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, in the end, I chose chose fencing. So I think at 
that point it became a lot more about everything I do now is kind of for fencing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still doing a lot of sports at school um, and running around. Like I played, yeah, at that point I joined the, the football team at school, my second school. Um, I was still on the netball team, tennis team. And I studied PE as one of my um, chosen subjects for mm-hmm. my exams to get into university and everything. So, yeah, I still had like a lot going on but I think it was a lot more of a conscious decision at around 15 16 that this is for fencing mm-hmm. whereas before that I was a bit like oh I don't really know what I want to do or what I'm going to do I'm just enjoying doing everything so I'll keep I'll keep doing it okay and did you have any like uh, role models while growing because you have fencing but fencing is not the most popular sport in the world we have a few uh, athletes that are very well known i know a few from france because I'm, i'm french um but yeah did you have like role models specifically in that sport or were you inspired by other either athletes or you know personalities uh, so my the person i always looked to when i was younger was actually roger federer okay um i just loved his dedication to his sport and how he conducted himself on the court and Yeah, I was just always in awe of him and how he played. And so I think, yeah, he was always the person that I wanted to to be like when I was younger. Um, and yeah, did that impact your career? Because as you, as you mentioned, he, he stayed at the top level for so many years, along with uh, Rafael Nadal and now uh, Novak Djokovic. But yeah, he, he was kind of the... The, the best or the you know the goat as some people say uh, so yeah how did that impact your uh, your career and how did you apply that to your uh, your fencing career I think I always really admired his perseverance um, I think like there were so many times in his career that he could have just been like do you know what I'm done but he never kind of did like every time he had an injury or something happened in his career where he didn't win a match that he was meant to he he just did it with such like grace and just came back every time and I think that's something that I've always tried to do now is whenever something's gone wrong in my career or there's been like a little hurdle in my path I just try to continue with that same like level of perseverance and be like okay but like I can come back and I can come back stronger and this isn't it okay interesting um so Just before we, we started the, the recording, you mentioned you are located in Paris right now. You were born uh, in the UK. You mentioned the Great Britain uh, national team. And now mm. you were Canada at international events at the Olympics. Uh, so, yeah, what's the story behind that? Uh, seemed to be a, a globetrotter. Uh, so, yeah, who's behind uh, Leo, the globetrotter? So that kind of goes back to my grandparents. Um, my family kind of comes from a bit of everywhere there's a bit of family history um my grandmother was half french half norwegian and my grandfather was czechoslovakian um so he actually left his home on foot and then on a fishing boat running from the communists and he went from czechoslovakia to vienna where he because he'd been given a, a a plane ticket to go from Vienna to London. Okay. Um, so he arrived in London where he had an, an aunt or something, a cousin. And 
he was never really comfortable there. He kind of decided that the channel wasn't a big enough sea to keep communists out. And he really felt they were going to come to England. And so he went to Canada and he set up his new home in Toronto. Um, And then I guess he kind of went back between London and Toronto for ages. Um, Met my grandmother in London. They went back to Toronto for a bit. And my mum was born in Toronto. Okay. And so when mum had us, so my sister was born while the Berlin Wall was still up and communism was still a thing. Um, And to put my grandfather's mind at rest, they took up our Canadian nationalities as soon as we were born. And so I've had a Canadian passport since birth. Interesting. And at 19 years old, I decided to change federations and compete for Canada. Okay, was it uh, was the decision more uh, oriented toward your family and your family history, or more about like the sport itself and the possible results and the the, the you know, fencing federation and all that? What kind of brought you to uh, to do that change? Um, so there was a lot of change going on in the British Federation at the time, and I didn't really agree with some of the stuff that was happening, like some of the decisions that were being made specifically towards, um, well, me. (laughs) And so I was just like, I can't, I've got other options. I don't need to stay with a federation where the high performance director at the time doesn't particularly feel that I'm going to be anything in fencing and that I could have the potential to make it. And I was still really young. I was still a junior and fencing is a game of experience. And I wasn't going to be allowed to get the experience needed to make it to the top. And so I changed so that I could get the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two years after I changed, I was qualifying for the Olympics. That's amazing. So, so that was uh, 2016, was it? Yeah, in 2016, I went to the Olympics. Nice. So is that uh, is that the silver lining for any fencer, the Olympics? Because I... I, I... I know there are many other you know, international events, uh, whether they be World Championship or World Cups and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what was your uh, your personal silver lining and uh, what you wanted to reach? You probably take you know year after year, but the Olympics is always some sort of a, a goal. Uh, so yeah, what what was your goal and what still is your goal now? My goal was always the Olympics when I was young. Um, I actually remember being about six or seven. And be like, I'm going to the Olympics and riding. I'm going to be a show jumper. Mm-hmm. Um, so even at six, I was talking about the Olympics and in a different sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's always been my dream. So I was very um, privileged to have made my dream a reality. But I think in terms of fencing, like everyone talks about the Olympics. Everyone talks about the Olympic gold. But I've always, I kind of want a bit more than that. Um, I think like I've always dreamt of being world champion too, you know, and even being consecutive world champions and Pan Am champion and just kind of being very much like at the top, mm-hmm. being the Roger Federer, you know, I want to be that person. Um, and I think that's kind of a goal that I've never really spoken about before as well, because it sounds a bit obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. But, but it is still, you know, you want to be the best. As, 
yeah as soon as you reach the the top level you 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 cannot just settle for hey i just want to make it to the olympics and that's it if you get you get there you want to get the best result and same for the the world championships and etc etc um so yeah how did you how did you perform at these uh these olympics and uh how did did it motivate you because i think you didn't uh, participate in the 2020-2021 uh, olympics uh yeah so what was the difference did you not qualify what what is the process to uh, to get into the olympics why did it work in 2016 not in 20 and also i saw on your i think on your instagram page that you write a road to paris 2024 which is an obvious goal so yeah how, how do you qualify um uh, to the olympics so the current qualification is um it's a little complicated so they do it first by the team event and then by the individuals okay um so top four teams in the world qualify individually and then the top oh, sorry top four teams qualify in the world automatically okay. then you have the um top team of each zone um so then you take all of those athletes from those countries off of the individual rankings and you have your revised rankings. Then you have top two Europeans, top two Asians, top American, top African athlete qualifies automatically. Then you take everybody out from those countries and the rest get to send one athlete to a qualifying competition, which they have to win in order to qualify. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... Yeah, there's a few little ways of qualifying, but it's all it's all kind of linked. Um, so the Olympic rankings go from April to April. So we are going, I'm going to my first uh, qualifying competition uh, in two weeks time. I'm leaving, oh no, next weekend. So I leave this weekend to Colombia for nice. that. Um, and it actually got changed. So before Rio, it was a different qualification. They had um, a second place on the zonal rankings for the Pan-American zone. And that's how I qualified for Rio. I was second in the rankings. And again, going to Tokyo, I was second in the rankings. And so I had to go to the qualifying competition. Um, Unfortunately, I did get injured before, well, just before COVID, actually. And it was assumed to be tendonitis. Okay. Um, which unfortunately it actually wasn't tendonitis. And we found out at the after the Olympic qualifying competitions that I actually had a bone spur on my shoulder, which had been digging into the tendon. And oh. so I spent well six months not training with my training partners because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And then another six months not training because I couldn't lift my arm above my waist. That's uh, um, yeah. not, uh, it's not quite ideal situation exactly. for training for trying to qualify. So I went to the qualifying competition off of about three weeks training mm-hmm. and adjusted training um, where I finished second and I lost in the final and so I didn't qualify. So it's just one or loss uh, that that made the decision. Uh, one, one, one game, one match, uh, one confrontation. So uh, how do you not recover from that? What's what goes through your mind right after? Because there's necessarily it's an up, it's an up 
in your uh, you know preparation in your uh, uh, you know all the, the pressure you feel and then you kind of know it's now it's four years from now so uh, yeah how do you come back from that um, and that brings maybe to another uh, topic which is like the, the the perseverance which goes back to Roger Federer and always wanting to stay at the top there's that four year cycle even if uh, even more for in your case when Olympics are the goal. Um, so yeah, what goes to your mind? How do you uh, recover from that, and how do you uh, improve uh, for the you know the next Olympics? Um, yeah, I mean it was very very tough. Um, I I kind of I guess I put aside my emotions a bit because I came back from the Olympic qualifier and I went even though I couldn't train like I started seeing surgeons and doctors and everything to which is was the surgeon that figured out that it was a bone spur because the doctors had actually um, sent me to a surgeon to shave off a bit of my bone to try and open up the shoulder to stop tendonitis from hurting it's basically give the tendon more room mm -hmm. and the surgeon looked at the scans that he said and he said he wasn't willing to operate without further scans Um, and he, the scans that he ordered showed a bone spur. So he did end up operating and shaving off the bone spur instead. Um, so I guess like, I mean, during this time when they were still trying to find what was going on and figuring it all out, I was still training to help my training partners, um, with their Olympic preparation. So three of my training partners here in Paris had qualified for Tokyo And so I still went to the cell and I tried to fence the best that I could to help them with their preparations. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they went off to their final training camp, I went and had an operation to fix the bone spur. And so I think I kind of had that to focus on a bit, which helped. But then in July and August, I think realization kind of really crept in about that I wasn't in Tokyo and... I was sitting in my parents' house watching the Olympics instead of being there, and especially seeing it on everyone's stories. It was all, yeah, that wasn't the, the easiest thing to do. Um, but I, it was very difficult. Like I had these feelings of failing and feelings of not being good enough, but also being like knowing that I had an injury that, meant I couldn't train for a whole year and knowing that I couldn't do what I want I needed to do to get there due to an injury like I also kind of had that logical side and that logical response as well as the emotional response which was kind of weird um to go through and to deal with um and then yeah I tried to I guess like by the end of it I was kind of telling myself that The silver lining was, yeah, if I'd qualified, if I had won that match, I would have gone to the Olympics with a bone spur. Mm -hmm. And is that what I want? Like, was I going just to be like, I'm at the Olympics? Or was I going to try and win? Yeah, but you can help. Think... Yeah, you can help but thinking, oh, what if in that case, like, what if I qualified? And what if I, I were to be in the Olympics? And what if and what if? So is that the part that's kind of hard to deal with? Or is it more the, oh, I'm not here and I'm just pissed? Yeah, I think for me, I was very much like, I should, I kind of had the mind frame of I should have qualified. Mm. And that was my place. But I wasn't good enough to qualify at the time. 
And then I kept telling myself, well, like you weren't good enough to qualify because you weren't able to train and you weren't able to train because you had an injury. So I did keep trying to like remind myself because I will very easily just tell myself that I'm not good enough. And that's the end of the story. Okay. So yeah, so I did have to just yeah, remind myself an, about the backstory. Okay. It was more of an external factor or something you didn't really control something you didn't choose <laughs> to, uh, to be injured. So it probably helps. And so in, in, uh, in getting back, uh, you know, on the, on the field or on the piste, you say? How do you call the yeah, the piece? The piece. Um, so yeah, after that, I get you come back from from your injury, and right away, uh, you you just focus on on Paris 2024. Is that correct? And you also live mm -hmm. or in Paris? Uh, why is that? Is this uh, because your family has a history in France? Is it because you have a good training center, or because you just want to be in the city of the Olympics, and that will make you be there <laughs> next year? Um, so I moved here for training opportunities. Um, so after university, I moved here full time. I moved here before the Rio Olympics too for one year, just to give myself the best training. Okay. Um, so my coach is, uh, known as one of the best in Epe. Okay. And I started training with him back in 2011 doing, uh, just training camps when I could outside school, school holidays I spent here. Um, and I never really thought about like training full time or anything like that. And then I was at university and I was trying to get my degree and live a bit of the student lifestyle. And then I got a result that propelled me into the Olympic qualifying place. And he took me to one side and he was like, you can't keep going to training properly in the holidays. You need to kind of make a choice. And if you're going to make a choice to be a full time athlete, Now is the time you put yourself into prime position to qualify. Why not follow it through? Mm -hmm. So, what's your um, your today as a professional fencer um, leading to the Olympics? How do you uh, now? It's I assume uh, 100% focus on this on fencing. There is no, no there mm -hmm. might be a few other activities, but yeah, what's your day to day? Do you uh, mostly go on? You go on as many competitions as you can. Uh, and what's that training uh, center like? Um, you mentioned it's one of the best and you have one of the best, the best coaches. So you put all the, the, the chances on your side. Um, so yeah, what's, uh, what's your day to day? So yeah, I, I train every morning. Um, we train from 8.30 to 1.30 every day. Um, so we, we do everything in one go rather than doing like smaller sessions throughout the day, mm -hmm. um, which enables us to work on the side or study or do something else. Um, a lot of us are actually self-funded at the moment. Um, <clears throat> so I'm currently self-funded and so I'm working in the afternoons. So I go to training, um, we do fitness. So I will do two sessions in the gym with a physical trainer a week and three sessions of cardio. Um, then we do footwork led by one of our coaches. And then we go into match play and lessons, so the more technical and tactical side of fencing. Um And so I train currently with a group of about 15 people who are all trying to be high-level athletes um, and who, for whatever reason, decided to move to Paris for that. It's a big group of international fencers, which is really nice because we 
like you know everyone comes from we've got people from brazil people from serbia mm. people from japan um as well as like belgium france so it's really nice to be in an international setting um and then so yeah i go to training come home shower i eat and i go to work as an english teacher that's uh and, and that's pretty because it always come back in all the, the discussions that i have mostly with olympians in um sports that are not you know super covered by the media is that you mentioned it you're self-funded so you are representing your country in one of the olympic sports Olymp yeah, olympic sports uh but you have to focus a half of your awake time uh working and you know Uh, paying the bills um is that the case in for all fencers or are are there some maybe the the most uh uh no uh not successful but the, the fencers with the most medals and the most successes can they focus on the on the um, on the sport are there any sponsors in uh in the sport or is it just considered an amateur quote-unquote amateur sport yeah so um they are there are some funding uh provided by the government. Um, I unfortunately was not chosen this year um, because I didn't compete in the World Championships due to another injury. Um, I accidentally slipped in water on the fencing oh. piece and couldn't, um, yeah, did my hamstring in right before the World Championships. <laughs> so, um, yeah, unfortunately I wasn't able to compete and so I wasn't... Uh, given the carding from the government again. Okay. Um, some people are also getting CAMP fund um, financial aid, the CAMP fund uh, grant. Um, and I get like so a lot of um, most fences as well. Actually, I think every fencer does receive funding from their uh, province, but unfortunately, I don't qualify for the provincial <laughs> funding either. Is it um, being in Paris. And, yeah, because I was born in the UK, um, I am affiliated with Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, and I got my license, my, um, my fencing federation license is through Ontario, but uh, they do state that you have to have an address there. And I don't. Oh, being born in the UK, my parents are in the UK. There should be a way to get you an address <laughs> in Ontario and help. Uh, but yeah, but that's, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a shame in a way uh, that you, I think uh, that Olympic um, athletes, Olympians representing their countries have to, you know, struggle in a way uh, in order to be able to keep uh, practicing the sport. But yeah, that's not something that can be, you know, solved here. But I think it's a discussion that, that needs yeah. to happen at the highest level. And you're not the first one. And of course, there are some athletes and in, in, you know, soccer or football for Europe, uh, hockey, basketball, tennis that can much, right, can live of the sport and make quite a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But it's really impressive. People like you with so much perseverance, resilience and grit and, and passion um, to be, you know, in a way forced or obliged to get into, um, to, to, to get a side job to, to make ends meet. Um, so you said you are a, uh, an English teacher in, in Paris. Where do you, uh, where do you teach? So I teach at a little um, English school called Anglo Fun, um, and it's just a, it's a little after school club kind of. It's a private business. Okay. Um, and we, yeah, we teach kids from Petit Section, which is like 
three years old. I As think. their second language? As a second language, yeah. Oh, it starts quite early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> starts early, um, which is always, I mean, I love the babies. They're, it's never the same. <laughs> You're always going to be a bit on, switched on with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go all the way up actually to adults. And um, yeah, no, I really enjoy it. It's lovely. Um, it gives me something to take my mind off my sport as well as being a source of income. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a little safe haven, I guess, for me. I go and I still have to be like switched on. Obviously, you're teaching, you're looking after kids, you're teaching someone a second language. It's like kind of important. And a lot of the adults are coming to us because they need it for work and they need to pass their TOEIC exams. And so... We do have people's like futures kind of in our hands in that sense. Um, but it's not to do with sport, which I'm kind of enjoying at the moment. Um, but yeah, I really love, I love teaching and being with the kids. The kids are so much fun. And is there anything that you can apply from your sport career into your teaching career or vice versa anything you learn from teaching that you can apply uh you can apply at the at fencing i think taking a breath <laughs> and taking like you know like when teachers say that deep breath they're like that's a real thing we do that yeah. okay so that's the um, main, main learning <laughs> i think being like it's just being like in control of like emotions, your reactions, you have to have the same thing in fencing. Like if you're too emotional and pieced, you show the other person that they're getting under your skin and that you're kind of losing it slightly and you're not able to control your actions. And I guess it's the same in teaching. You don't ever want to show the kids that what they're doing is getting to you mm-hmm. because they'll keep going. Um, And also no one wants to shout at kids. That's not fun. And that's not why we, like, that's not why we teach. We don't teach to shout, right? Like, mm-hmm. or to get angry at someone like you. There's other ways to diffuse situations. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the same in, on the piece. Like, you find another way to deal with it. Interesting. Very interesting. And is that something you, you'd like to keep doing uh, after your, your career? Or would you have some sort of a, a career change um, more in the sport, uh, the world of sport? You, you seem to mention right now that it's it's a good thing that your side job is not related to sport at all. So you can you know, take a step back and you know, breathe mm-hmm. and, and mind. Uh, so yeah, what, what do you see uh, the, the post-career uh, um, schedule to be like? Um. I do like teaching. I don't know if I'd be able to teach for a long time uh, or maybe not like back at home in a real school. Like I really like the second language part. Um, yeah, I don't think I would do so well in a, a school setting. Um, I always kind of wanted to be involved in sport. Um, I do have my coaching diploma and So I am looking at going into coaching maybe a bit later mm-hmm. and also maybe working in the federation. That's always interested me in terms of like the performance pathway, um, encouraging people in fencing and just trying to help people in their own careers. That's always been something I've been quite passionate about. Interesting. So yeah, you, you might be open to get 
back into the sport world after your career once fencing is not at the core of what you do on a daily basis is that correct yeah i think so i think like just taking a little step back to start with afterwards just to clear the head a bit maybe um and coming back and helping younger athletes with their careers and just helping them achieve their own goals and their own dreams mm -hmm. Perfect. Uh, so if you were to give advice to um, the new generation of uh, fencer, uh, whether they be in in Canada or, or in the UK, which is uh, naturally uh, um, close to your heart, uh, what would it be? I've just got, it's, you've got to stick with it. It's a sport that is incredibly frustrating. It's <laughs> how come? How, how so incredibly so? disheartening a lot of the time. But it's also incredibly rewarding, and it's just so like you know when you're when you're on the piece and you're feeling it and you feel good like it's just such an amazing feeling. But it takes time to get there, and it does take experience to make it at the top level and to hold it at that level. We all have like great days, but getting to the point where you're having your great days become your normal. <laughs> Mm -hmm. getting to that point it just takes so much time and so much work but when you get there it's worth it mm -hmm. it's worth it i guess for your uh per the personal feeling that you get from winning and getting to the top because i read one thing i guess before i think before you went to the olympics in 2016 where you said that you expected uh a big crowd and that it would be kind of surprising because you're not used to it is i think if i understand correctly that even in national or international events, um, there's not necessarily so many people watching on site. Uh, is that really a thing? Is, uh, is fencing still kind of uh, not popular um, and only popular in the Olympics? Because at the end of the day, everybody watches the Olympics and that's, you know, it's the time to shine for a specific sport um, mm -hmm. every four years. So yeah, is, that, is there also maybe a frustration that can, um, that can come up when you start reaching the top, whatever, top 10, top 20 in the world, but you still are not You don't feel like an external, you know, um, uh, not pressure, but uh, feeling of excitement when you when you get into events. Yeah, I mean, so it depends where in the world you are competing. Like when you come to France and you have the World Cups in France, the stadiums are full. You've got to buy tickets. It's sold out. Yeah. You can't get in. Like I get in because I, I know the sales, like I can just kind of sneak through a back door somewhere. Okay. <laughs> I get one of my friends who's competing. Um, so there's no women's event. It got, the women's event in Paris got cancelled and became um, a foil event. So okay. I go and watch it when I can. But instead of buying a ticket, I kind of sneak in the back door or <laughs> um, call a friend or, and be like, get or you me just a pass. Put your gear, or you just put your gear on. You're like, I, I'm just, I'm uh, one of the participants. <laughs> Let you see. Yeah, I left my accreditation inside. Let me... <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea yeah. <laughs> um, so in France like yeah there's a huge crowd um, but France has such a huge history of fencing mm -hmm. and it's advertised so much whereas in smaller countries there isn't that same history or there's not so much involvement Um And like often people will be like, oh, I'm a fencer. And they're like, what? Okay. <laughs> and I kind of have to explain what fencing is and what it means. Whereas in France, if I'm like, 
yeah, I do fancy. And they're like, wow, that's so cool. Do you know Yannick Barral? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, we, so we have a, a few champions in France and I've always been a, a fan of sports and I was watching all sorts of sports at the Olympics. So I, I'm, I know just you know, enough to have a conversation. But apart from France, what are the big uh, countries for, for fencing? Um, so Italy. Italy is another big, big mm -hmm. one. Um, you've got China too. A lot of the Asian countries are really coming in strong right now. So like China and Korea are right up there. Um, and the USA. Okay. Those are things. Oh, Hungary as well. Hungary is big. Interesting. And what about Canada? Is it is it is fencing growing in Canada or is it just staying as it is right now and there's not necessarily any uh, um, uh, new development in that uh, in that sport? So I definitely think it's growing in terms of um, results. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot more people going to competitions right now in the senior. Like definitely a senior women's epic it used to just kind of be like the same, like four of us that would all go and maybe there'd be a fifth or sixth one occasionally and they, that person would always change. Now we're getting a lot more um, participants. At the last, uh, one of the last World Cups in February, we had the max amount of entries possible of 12 people, nice. which in my 10 years of being on the team, I haven't seen that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that was really good to see. Um, some of the younger athletes like coming in and starting to travel and especially on the senior circuit. And even at the last, um, the cadet world championships that just happened in April in uh, Bulgaria, Canada got medals and that was amazing to see and amazing to see the cadets and juniors really shining through and starting to push through on the world circuits in their respective categories. So yeah, I'm really excited about the future of Canadian fencing and I hope it continues that we continue to get better results and also that at a grassroots level that more people see that and get involved and want to fence. Mm -hmm. So where would, should someone be interested in, in checking some of the upcoming events, including the ones where you'll be uh, participating, competing for a uh, qualification for Paris, where would one be able to watch you? Are there uh, TV channels, streaming, uh, where can we, can we find you and follow you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, great question. Unfortunately, the um, we as an international fencing federation don't have access to many funds right now because our old president, who did give money, was um, closely linked to Putin. Oh, well. <laughs> and his accounts <laughs> were frozen. Okay. And so that kind of cut the international federation's like financial support in a way mm -hmm. and so one of the things they have cut from competition was photography and live streaming of the competitions oh. but i do know that there have been some private uh people have been privately doing it um so i can't remember off the top of my head the names of the channels but i will give them to you yeah um, i'll put them in the notes Yeah, because it's, it's yeah. sad in a way that we go down to having individuals having to stream or broadcast or whatever the, the word is to be able to follow like high-level athletes. So whatever you have in terms of links, uh, send them send them to me Sorry, afterwards. Uh, so I, I put them into the, the notes of the podcast if anyone is interested. Yeah, I will I'll definitely find them because I know that like the people that do the videoing and that were paid to do it have kind of been like, this is, we want to keep broadcasting it and we want to mm -hmm. keep people able to see it. So they're kind of just doing it anyways. 
Interesting. Um, so I will try and find that name for you. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and where should we follow you personally, uh, Leo? So I, um, I'm on Instagram. And my mm-hmm. handle is leomac1, or you can find me on my full name, Leonora McKinnon. Um, I also have an athlete page on Facebook, which is my full name, so Leonora McKinnon. Um, yeah, and that's kind of, I'm not great with social media. I do try. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't come um, that naturally to me and cool. trying to find the time as well to keep doing but i do post about my competitions and i do post my results and yeah so Perfect. that's definitely so we'll, where you can follow me we'll, uh, we'll also put the links uh put the links to that um and if you were to meet uh the 10 year old leo what would you tell her if you could give a couple of uh pieces of advice tell her to keep following in roger federer's footsteps keep persevering like there's going to be a lot of hurdles to come, but that she's strong enough to keep going. Interesting. Very cool. Um, and what can we wish you for the next, let's say, next year, next two years, starting, I think, in uh, South America in a few days? Yeah, so I'm really hoping... Um, we have, oh, I've got two objectives. We've got the ob- team objective, which is obviously to qualify as a team. So qualify with my teammates. Um, which would just be incredible to do because in Rio I was the only one from women's epe there so I think it would be a whole different experience to be able to qualify with my team and have my girls around me and to do it with them um and then obviously I do my individual goals of qualifying as well um but I I'm really planning on being back to where I was pre-covid Mm-hmm. where I was making like top eights and was almost meddling at the World Cup. So I was about to get my first medal and, you know, like I want to be back at that level. Like I'm ready to be back there and to show that the last few years with the injuries and stuff, it's all gone and it's behind me and yeah, I'm back. Okay, perfect. So fingers crossed that you'll uh, you'll get back there. You deserve it and your uh, your journey to where you are now shows uh, how perseverant uh, you are. So I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll get back at it. Um, the last two questions that are kind of scripted, I always ask. Uh, one is, if, I, if you were to um, put me in touch with one of your, um, one, of, one of the athletes you know well, Canadian one, uh, that you think has an interesting story to tell about their, you know, their journey, their career and everything outside of sport as well. Uh, who would that person be? So I do have an athlete. So she's actually retired now, but okay. her story was, I love listening to her talk about it. Um, so Melanie Mikan from Pentathlon. Okay. Um, and I just think she's been so incredible. Like all pentathletes actually, like just training for five sports. I can't even imagine it now. Like I train for one and I'm like, <laughs> yes. So I don't know how they train for five. Um but yeah, she's she was a very good pentathlete and she was at Rio and London, I believe, too. Awesome. Yeah, um, I would love to uh to have the opportunity to talk to her. That would be wonderful. Um and the the very last question is um if uh, so i'm building a wall of fame at my uh, place with gears from the the various guests i had on the podcast um is there any gear from uh, from your career that uh, you don't use anymore and are uh, in a corner of your room that you might uh, want to share with me 
Yeah, um, I I definitely have some gear. So I've got either an old jacket or an old mask that I'd be very happy to send you. Oh, that would be wonderful. S sending might cost an arm and leg, so I, either I will send you a pre-stamped box or next time I'm in Paris, because I'm from France, I'm in Paris once in a while. So uh, we'll coordinate for that. Yeah. The mask looks <laughs> so amazing <laughs> amongst the other stuff. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Leo, for your time. That was a great discussion. Love your uh, yeah your perseverance. Again, I think that's one of the things you you um, took inspiration from, from uh, Roger Federer. Um Any last word for the audience? I think, like, for me, like, one of the things I've really learned through through fencing and through sport in general, like, is just, like, follow, do what you love and keep going with it and just work towards your, your goals and you, you will get there. Awesome. Yeah. Thank, thank you thank you, you leo we uh hope to see you in uh, in paris if there is no other way to uh to see you live uh, in a competition before uh, but if there is uh, i'll be more than uh, happy to uh, to see you qualify fingers crossed uh for uh, for paris thank you so much leo once again thank you if you're still here it's probably because you liked the episode right So, if you want the podcast to grow and get more exceptional athletes, you can play your part by following us on your favorite podcast platform and on Instagram at unfiltered.athletes. It really helps us. And until next time, enjoy life! <laughs>